0: Please join us in giving special thanks to our family of patrons Storyfolk Paul Jackson, Christy Carson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selena Vokenhaar. Thanks to their support, the stories keep flowing. You're listening to Lore and Legend Tales from Our Mythic Past. today we're talking to storyteller and author daniel allison daniel is a usa today best-selling author oral storyteller podcaster and coach from scotland he is the author of silverborn and other tales scottish myths and legends and finn and the fiena daniel is a fellow storytelling podcaster His podcast, House of Legends, features stories and interviews of storytellers from across the UK and international storytelling scene. It features a mix of classical stories from world folklore to lesser known Irish myths, Siberian legends and rare gems of Scottish folklore. None of the stories that you hear on House of Legends are read from a script, as Daniel and his guests rely on memory and the magic of the moment to shape the tales that they speak. Now Daniel has lived in India, Nepal, Uganda and Thailand, but he now divides his time between Scotland and Thailand. And his latest project is The Roundhouse, an online school for storytellers where students meet every month to share stories and support each other as they develop their skills as performers. In our conversation today, we discussed Daniel's desire to revive Scottish folklore and the popular consciousness the success of his recent book of Scottish myth and legend, and the inspiration and the vision behind his online school of storytelling. But before all of that, we begin with Daniel's story. This story is called The Makers of Dreams.
1: So they say that on one crisp bright October morning, Long ago, on the island of Skye, on the west coast of Scotland, a group of girls set out to go blaberry picking. They left their village and they walked across the moors towards the foothills of the Black Cullen Mountains. And as they walked, they were joking and they were chatting and they were enjoying one another's company. They had their baskets in hands, ready to be filled with sharp, juicy berries. And once they got to the foothills, the places where the blaberries grew, uh, they carried on talking and they carried on joking as they picked, but for one of them. Now this girl, she was a little different to the others. She enjoyed the company of the others, but when she got intent on picking the berries, everything else just fell away. She was like a wolf hunting. She was bent down low, looking, 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 and she moved upwards, 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 through the foothills, not noticing that she was moving upwards. She was just intent on the grass before her, the tang, tang of the berries as she tasted them. Yes, yes, that one was good. More of these. And so on she went through the day until at some point she realised, she kind of awoke from her hunting trance and she realised that she couldn't hear her friends and she stood up and looked around her and... Oh... She wasn't in the foothills anymore, she was among the Black Cullen mountains themselves. Now those mountains are dangerous, even today they take people's lives regularly, and compasses don't work up there, (laughs) something to do with the magnetism of the mountains, and back then People knew all the stories, all the stories of the strange beasts, the giants, the black boars of those mountains. And so the girl was rightly terrified to be up there. And just as she looked around her and thought, oh, no, I need to get out of here. The har, the mountain mist drew in around her like a cloak being wrapped around her. So she couldn't see one foot this way or that way or that way or that way. What was she going to do? She stood still, looking about her, clutching her basket full of berries. And then she heard rocks shifting. She heard a kind of low moaning sound and terror took her. Faces appeared through the mist. And she laughed. For it wasn't giants, it wasn't the long dead that were all around her. It was a herd of deer, a herd of hinds. And they gathered in close around her and they sniffed at her and they nudged and butted at her with their heads and they looked at her as if to say, What, what are you doing here? Well, she let them examine her and then they all at once. Their ears pricked up and they all looked in a certain direction, staring in that intense, still way the deer will do. And then they all began to move. The hara cleared just a little, revealing this little rocky path leading along, leading upwards. And they began to move one by one along that path. And they looked back towards her as if to say, are you, are you not coming? And well, what else was she going to do? She followed them. And so she followed them, all through the rest of that day, onwards and upwards, upwards and onwards, until in the day's last hours, the har finally cleared as they led her into a glen, into a valley, high up in the mountains. And this glen was the most beautiful glen she had ever seen Little jagged mountain tops surrounding this green meadow, crisscrossed with babbling streams, scattered with wild flowers, waterfalls ran down between the rocks, and the hinds led her down a path through over the marshy grass, on, on, on through the meadow, until they came to the far edge of the glen. There was a cave. The girl stopped outside the cave as did most of the deer, one of them went in and she watched and she looked she looked into the cave and she saw the hind approach two people. Sat within the cave were an old man and an old woman. And not just old, old is not a good enough word. Ancient isn't a good enough word. These people were ancient when the world was young. Ancient when the stars were young. They sat there, this incredible stillness about them, on rock stools, peering into a pool. And the pool shimmered. And the girl stared at them as they stared into the pool. And then the hind came up and spoke to the old woman some strange deer tongue, and she nodded and then looked up, looked up at the girl, and then up she got, staring. She her pulled shuffled over to the girl and she said, what brings you here? I, well, I I, I got lost. I was out picking berry, berries with my friends and, and I saw the deer and they led me here. And c- could I stay here for the night? And she reached into her uh, basket and offered the woman a handful of berries because she was in her home, it seemed so, so quite right to offer her a gift And the old woman looked at the berries and looked into the girl's eyes and she smiled and she went over and spoke to the old man and he nodded and she came back. And the old woman said, no, you may not stay a night. A year and a night you may stay. I could do with some help with the hinds. Stay here, learn our ways and you will be rewarded. So that's what the girl did. She stayed there. She slept in the cave. She followed the old woman as she went about her work, and it wasn't really that complicated, so she picked it up soon enough. The old woman at some point every day would take a bucket out across the meadow and a stool, and she'd sit down on the stool with a bucket before her, and the deer would come ambling along, and they would line up before her and one by one they'd stand in front of her and she would sh- 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 milk the deer when her bucket was full she'd go and gather wild flowers and herbs thyme and meadow and scatter them over the bucket of milk and then take it back and then heat it over a fire to make crowdy, a kind of sharp tangy cheese and that was the old woman's work that was the old woman's life When the crowdie was ready, she would give it to the old man who sat there staring day and night into that pool. And staring into the pool, he'd reach into the bucket and take some of that cheese and fashion it into some strange shape until his bucket was full of them. And at some point, it might have been days, it might have been weeks, it might have been months, the girl said to the old woman, What is that crowdie? And she said, It is dreams. The pool is the pool of life. The crowdie, they are dreams. We are the makers of dreams. Each evening, the old man would take the bucket full of dreams and he would walk slowly out to a rocky buttress that overlooked the Western Ocean. As the sun scattered gold over the mountains, He would reach into the bucket and take out a dream and a bird would come flying down. In his left hand, in his left hand, he would hold up dark dreams. Dreams of hatred, of envy, bloodshed and battle. And birds of the battlefield, kites and crows would come swooping down, snatch up the dreams and they would fly away to plant them in sleeping mines all over the world dark harvest they would wait to reap. And in his right hand, in his right hand, he held out dreams of hope, friendship, love, brotherhood, sisterhood, and wrens and eagles and falcons would come swooping down, and off they would go to deliver them beyond the veil of sleep. And so the year passed, until eventually, the old woman said to the girl, it's time for you to go. You've done well. Your reward awaits you. And well, that, that, that was quite exciting. It'd be interesting to go somewhere else uh, after all that time. It'd been a year and a night. But mm, the girl was kind of sad because she'd grown used to living there. She liked her sleeping place near the fire. She liked to wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and go and sit by the pool and stare into it somehow, somehow, over those long hours. She came to understand the pool of life. She came to look at those strange shapes of cheese and know what dreams they held. But when it's time to go, it's time to go. So she went the deer leading her down, 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 down out to the glen, through the mountains, down, 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 till she came to a Little Beach. And it was evening, the sun was setting and she said, oh, well, I'll miss you. And she hugged each of the deer and she made to leave. But they crowded round her, not letting her leave. And she said, why are you not letting me leave? And they all looked out to the sea and she looked out to the sea and she saw a little boat coming in. Coracle, a little round skin boat. And there was a man in that boat. And he beached his craft. He walked up the shore, the hinds parted before him. And he was some man, thick and golden torque around his neck, fine clothes, shining eyes like the depths of the sea. And he smiled and she felt somewhat faint. And he said, my lady, I have dreamed of you every night for a year and a night within the halls of my father's kingdom. And I've come now to search for you to find you and to ask if you will be my wife, be my bride and return with me over the sea to Tir Nanog, land of the ever young, and there teach us the meaning of dreams. She'd learned some wisdom in her time up in the Glen. She knew that this was her destiny and she happily agreed. She got into the boat. She went over the sea, west, further west and west, until she came to tir land of the ever young. There, she taught those people the meaning of dreams, and she lives there now, and she will live there until the end of days.
0: Mm, wonderful, thank you.
1: Thank you, it's always such a pleasure to tell that story.
0: Yeah. How does it... Um... What's its significance, do you think, in the wider sort of um, uh, mythology of the the Vienna and the uh, the Scottish tradition?
1: It's something of an odd one out. It's got this, it's got a different feel to it. I don't know if feel the right word, uh, mood, taste, flavor, uh, to for possibly any other Scottish story. And I know it feels like it comes, if you imagine the stories are all part of like strata, going down through like layers of rock it feels like it's from a, a different layer or perhaps a deeper layer and um, than any other Um, so I, I can't connect it to anything else um, I mean folklorist might be able to say oh this is a bit like that I don't know but for me it's just it's special it's unique and it feels alive like I look into the images and they're just pulsing pulsing with life
0: yeah, no, I um I did research on dreams at university, so the mythology and folklore of of dreams is of particular interest to me. But I never never heard this story before, and uh, you, you know you do find that association, uh, you know, between uh, dreams and creative power. You know, sort of the the connection to the kind of the world being dreamed into being and that kind of thing, and that is such a Mm. um evocative and powerful example of that uh really is beautiful
1: mm, yeah so something i really like i really like that it's the same people who deliver the the light dreams and the dark dreams mm. i think that's really important and I, I do think it really ties into what i pick up from from the other celtic stories That like with the, the fianna in particular um and a big teaching I think of their stories like the stories are they're not really the type of stories where each one seems to have a specific message but rather there's an underlying philosophy which is this um yes to life this embracing of life in all its beauty and all its tragedy and all its darkness and all its wonder and which is really encapsulated in the story where she uh goes to tiernanog uh, in another story and it's perfect and it's wonderful and he loves it until he just gets bored (laughs) because he life here you know with all its ups and downs is better and he misses it and he wants to leave tiernanog and that encapsulates a lot of what the celtic stories are about to me Mm.
0: yeah the um sort of the the dreams from the right and left hand uh Another, it's another motif of good and bad dreams that seems to recur because in, in Greek mythology, you have the two gates of dreams, um, mm. true dreams and false dreams. Um, I think I like the the differentiation between sort of peaceful dreams and evil dreams a bit better than that. It's uh, a different dichotomy. The figures who, who give these dreams very much seem to be part of uh, this kind of like immortal realm of like living whereas in the greek Mm. tradition the dreams come from the land of the dead there's an elision between uh ghosts are like dreams and dreams are like ghosts and they're constantly kind of blending or being mistaken for each other and in that kind of tradition uh whereas this feels more life-affirming yeah coming from a similar source is there um I, i suppose if it's a singular kind of story there probably isn't but you know do we hear Anything else about uh, this maiden who who teaches the interpretation of dreams elsewhere in the myths?
1: Not that I've come across. Maybe uh, you know appear, but in a you know in a different guise that I haven't recognised her. But if if anyone could tell me, please get in touch. But yeah, we we've lost so much in the Celtic tradition that there are just these huge huge gaps. You know, we we don't really know who our gods are um you know in scotland at least there's a bit more uh remaining in wales and in ireland um but for me that's kind of it's tragic and it's exciting because i like to dream into those gaps mm. and explore and make things up and intertwine things and that's what storytellers have always done the stories have never stood still cultures um sharon Black- blackie talks about this you know cultures never stand still and there's an always an evolution every storyteller is always adding something of themselves their voice their energy to stories so there's great potential to do that with the celtic stories and great great potential for a creativity and boldness and daringness in how we do it Well, I run the House of Legends podcast. Um, I also run the Roundhouse Storytelling School, which is an online school and membership site for storytellers. And in terms of my own work, I suppose my particular area of interest is weaving together my paths as a writer and as a storyteller. Uh, So I'm an oral storyteller, um, telling stories from all over the world, but with a particular focus on Scottish and Celtic uh, myths and legends and then i write uh, collections of stories and i write fantasy um based on traditional stories and uh, explore the the meeting places between all of these um based in scotland but i also like to periodically go and stay in thailand for a while
0: and you recently published a series of books uh like you mentioned on scottish mythology which seem to have done uh, really well they got on some of the bestseller lists uh didn't they yeah,
1: just one book, Scottish Myths and Legends, that's been, uh, that's been my hit, uh, not the other ones
0: yet. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, is there any reason why you think that particular book has been successful?
1: Um, on on a very practical level um I managed to get it into a, a book promotion scheme which are they're a kind of very picky one that you have to most people don't get don't get on but if you do get on they can kind of they can help your book to really get noticed so on um, one level I just I just uh, got very lucky in being selected by them um on another level, I think the reason Scottish myths and legends in particular has done well is because, People are excited for a fresh uh, story tradition or a mythological tradition, or that's, you know, that's fresh to them. Obviously, the stories aren't new, you know, um, Greek stories, everyone's been familiar with them for a very long time. I think we've reached a saturation point possibly um, with the Norse tradition, but then, then kind of waiting in the wings, I think, is the Celtic tradition and i think it's just kind of ready to explode you know some people are aware of it other people aren't and i think a lot of people who are aware of it are not quite sure where to begin there isn't the the obvious book or the obvious the obvious place to go and so i think it's just kind of perhaps come along at the right time people are saying oh scottish stories scottish mythology scottish legends yeah yeah that's interesting there are lots of books of scottish stories but most of them are for children or the ones for adults a lot of them are kind of more academic studies so I think it was um, putting it together in a way which looked like the average person could say, "Oh yeah, I, th- I think I, w- I can get a handle of that." And then I think possibly it's maybe my voice is the right voice because I, uh, like I said, I'm a author, like I write fantasy as as well as an oral storyteller, and um, so I've got a habit of perhaps giving the stories a bit more depth of character, a bit more um, detail, and how I describe the scenes. Um, than, than other oral, story, oral storytellers might if they're putting their um putting their stories down on the page. Uh, so I think that combination of things has made people give it a chance, which is really great.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's just, I, I know what you mean about the sort of the... I'm aware of like Scottish folk tales as a category, but actually I wasn't really familiar with these sort of like central characters of the Scottish mythology, really until your work kind of thrust them forward so do you want to talk about this canon of stories at the heart of the the scottish storytelling tradition it's the 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 mythology of the the fiena is that is that how you say it?
1: yeah yeah some people say the Fienna, some people say the Fienna. um <laughs> i don't really know what's correct i'm sure both are correct uh so yeah it's it's a funny thing in that um the the sequel to a uh, scottish myths and legends was finn and the Fienna or finn and the Fienna um, which is a retelling of the Finn cycle of stories. Um, so the Fianna are a band of warriors, a brotherhood of warriors who keep the shores of Scotland and Ireland safe from invaders. And when they're not doing that, they're feasting and they're fighting and they're going off into the forest and having all kinds of strange adventures. And they, in a way, they're at the heart of the Scottish folklore tradition, but in a way they're not because most people in Scotland haven't heard of them. Um, whenever I go to school and I say, um, you know, who, hands up, who's heard of Finn McCull? Zero hands up. It's a different situation in Ireland, which shares the tr- this tradition. In Ireland, they've really held on to uh, their, their folklore, It's uh, taught in schools. Only only a small number of the stories that Irish people will say to me, but like, you know, everyone knows the story of Aisin going to Tirna Nog. Uh, everyone knows the story of Pillow Talk from the Toinbuconia. So... Um, what I'm kind of doing is saying, look, you, you don't know this, but <laughs> and but these stories are um, at the heart of our tradition. They deserve to be at the heart of their tradition. So I'm trying to kind of shove them forward into the spotlight. Um, I really, I really love the stories. It's partly because it's really nice to have some some people, some characters that you can get to know and follow through lots of different adventures. Like, so if you're into Greek mythology, you know, you get to know Zeus and his strange ways and temperaments and it's kind of the same with Finn you know because otherwise you're reading disparate stories from all across the country folktales and so on which is great but um, it's always different characters. So you have um, these really, really great, larger-than-life characters: Finn McCool, the captain of the Fianna; uh, Dermot, the handsome warrior; his son, um, Finn's son, Oisin, who was raised in the woods by a deer, who is his mother. Um, you got Finn's hounds, Bran and Skolin, who are also his cousins. <laughs> There's, you know, it's really, really mad stories, and the. The stories as a whole form this amazing cycle um, from Finn's, uh, Finn's youth to growing up, to becoming captain of the Fianna, to then the all these incredible adventures, then the falling apart of the Fianna, when his second in command, Dermot, um, runs off, r- runs off, looks from his wedding with his bride, Grania, which is a kind of precursor to Tristan and his old, Lancelot and Guinevere. It's like a more ancient uh, version of that story um so it's it's a cycle which you can really you can really fall in love with you can fall in love with the characters and then keep finding more and more to explore
0: that's interesting that because yeah I was before you said it I was going to say oh that sounds a lot like the sort of Arthurian story arc as well so um there's a nice kind of parallel there isn't it sort of everything that's happened before is happening again kind of thing Mm. um and I, I guess across the the border as well you know scotland and england and sort of sharing elements of uh, a tradition there that's it's really interesting
1: yeah i'm sure that arthurian tradition picked up um quite a lot of uh, influence uh, from the finn cycle and uh, when it when it's made its way to britain
0: if it did come from elsewhere as uh, some would say and uh do you, do you tell a lot of those stories on your podcast
1: Yeah. The Finn stories, I did a series after I launched the book. I told, um, I think, five or six stories. Um, I I read them out. In that case, I read them, uh, the first first, uh, set of stories, sequence of stories uh, from the book. And then I'll do another one here and there, I'm sure, in the future. Uh, I'm working on uh, what I've been doing this morning is working on a storytelling show, uh, a performance which I think is going to be two hours, uh, retelling of the story of Dermot and Grania, the one I mentioned, which is kind of like uh, Lancelot and Guinevere, um, which is really epic, and it's it's an awful lot to get my head around because all these different episodes and you know how you'd fit it into show is uh, quite baffling. But uh, I am trying to do that, um, so I'll return to that at some point in the podcast. I think.
0: Apart from you know performing, part of your work is also as a storytelling coach isn't it your your latest project which you mentioned is the roundhouse which is sort of a um a site for uh oral storytellers to practice their craft did you have coaches and mentors when you started out as a storyteller and what kind of things did you learn from them
1: yeah yeah and so when i started out my first teacher was david campbell who's this uh, really wonderful man. He's in his late 80s now and still going strong, still doing lots of storytelling because um, it's just who he is rather than a job. Um, So he was the apprentice of the Scottish traveller storyteller Duncan Williamson uh, he's very famous, anyone who's listening to this and interested in oral storytelling, what will we'll know about him. Uh, a traveler who said to have known 3,000 plus stories and 3,000 plus songs and just lived a kind of never-ending session, never-ending Kaylee, um, his whole life really. And so he met David and then David apprenticed him, became a storyteller. And uh, David's a really, really wonderful character. And um, he ended up being my mentor in, in quite a loose way. I mean, it wasn't like I was going around behind after him every day or um, sat his foot kind of him telling me what to do. Um, it was a kind of uh, more kind of a hand, on the, a hand on the steering wheel, I think, just kind of nudging me in this direction and that direction. He nudged me towards the FIA nub. It was years before I kind of got onto it because I kind of found it all a bit confusing. Um, but I think from David, uh, it it was a case of just learning from who he was, rather than learning any kind of techniques. Um, I did a couple of workshops and went and uh, learned some kind of nuts and bolts specific things from him and another great teacher, Ruth Kirkpatrick. But really it was from David's, he has this incredible um, appetite for life and incredible love of people and wants to bring out the the potential joy and magic and wonder in every situation he encounters, whether that's you know sitting on the bus, he'll just start talking to people and making jokes to them and like or just going into a cafe and he'll get the people you know you could you could have the people at the next table singing along with them in the next um 15 minutes or so and he would approach stories in the same way you know he'd always just want to offer you a story uh, or for a story to to this person or that person or to get or to get a story out of this person or get a song or a joke out of that person um so it was this kind of like fearless uh, approach to storytelling, to just go in and tell a story and enjoy it, like play with it, be be full of wonder and be childlike uh, within the landscape of that story. And that's what I learned from him and t- tried to tried to embody in my practice. Other than that, for, for me, I think the main teaching was that I did loads and loads of schoolwork um, in, over the years, in the early years. And that was my main education, I think, just learning from children, either absolutely loving or absolutely hating what you're doing and adapting accordingly.
0: Excellent. Yeah, we um, uh, did an episode with Amy Douglas very recently who uh learned from duncan williamson as well so uh, uh really important figure in the uh in the storytelling world
1: <laughs> yeah oh that's really nice i've just been hanging out with amy a lot this weekend at beyond the border festival and i really really enjoyed her show i thought it was the best thing i saw all weekend um, was her show about her apprenticeship with duncan and her first time going up and living with him when she was just like an 18 year old girl uh, it was really heartwarming
0: when did you first start to sort of include coaching in your work? Um, do you think there's a certain stage that you have to get to before you can help others with their sort of storytelling journey?
1: I started really early in a sense in that David would just say to me like, Oh, well, let's do this workshop or, you know, why, why don't we make a workshop out of this? Or, Oh, I'm going to be teaching, come along and come along and help. Um, so i I I imagine I don't really I didn't really know much of what I was doing back then, um, but we we had good fun. People seemed to enjoy the sessions. I don't know how much help I was. Um, in a sense, I think you know you you don't have to be Mozart to teach someone the recorder. And um, there are basic things you can learn and then you can pass on. But it's it was a case of just doing the odd thing over the years. You know when I when I got asked, um, and which generally I think went well um, until. Recently, so just when lockdown started, uh, I found myself suddenly, you know, um, at home, I'd just come back from Thailand and I found myself back in Scotland and not able to work and, you know, with no government help whatsoever. And I was just like, oh, OK, right. What am I going to do then? And I thought, um, well, I've had this offer for online coaching on my website for years. Um, but, you know, I never pushed it or promoted it. I don't think anyone had ever taken it up. And I thought, well, I think I'll give that a go. And so now seems a good time. People might want to do that. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it as a group. Um, put a thing, an, an advert on Facebook, a couple of emails, and I was full within a few days. And a couple of months later, I started a second group, and it was an ongoing program. So we would meet twice a month, and I would give people materials uh, every month. You know, we'd look at trickster stories or we'd look at Norse stories or what have you. And it just and it just went really well. Like we just we all really enjoyed the sessions and we had great fun together. And I think I am. I do enjoy teaching. I think I do have a kind of natural teaching streak. Um, my dad was a teacher. My mum was a teacher. Uh, my mum, uh, sorry, my sister is a teacher. You know, all different mediums, but uh, we're a teaching family. It seems so. Yeah, it went really well. And then I decided to add to it and create the Roundhouse, so that as well as direct coaching, which is you know um, not possible, not affordable for everyone, people could do self-directed study as well.
0: Does uh, doing coaching sort of change your own perspectives on how you practice or, or perform storytelling?
1: I think it's hard to say because we started at the beginning of lockdown and I've done no live performances uh, apart from one. Literally two weeks ago, I finally got back into it and went to a school. So I'm not sure in terms of my actual like performance, um, but it's it's been really good for me because of the sense of community like um we're we're not just it's not like i just see the people for the coaching sessions and that's that there's a real kind of close-knit um family feeling there and um i'm able for example to just like call up a student and be like okay i just want to do a five-minute gossip through a story can i do that to you Yep, sure and they can do the same to me and you know we will just be like ping each other stuff back and forth on WhatsApp. So I feel like my practice, I feel less isolated and I feel inspired by what I see them doing. And I know what I, I'm doing is feeding into other people's practice and making a difference in their lives. Like um, um, two of my students, Kat and Kirsten, um, Kat, Kat came from a theater background that hadn't done storytelling and Kirsten never done any um, anything like that at all. And within a year, They'd, um, they are both just amazing. Kat was teaching already. Um, Kirsten, I had her on the podcast because she's absolutely brilliant. And they've both um, been awarded, got a, got a big funding award to develop a piece together and to perform at the Scottish Storytelling Festival. So um, seeing these incredible changes in people's lives and in themselves and in their practice where they come back a month later and they've done everything I've asked them to do and they've got better and then they get better the next month and they get better the ne- better the next month. And that's really inspiring. So I suppose... It's really making storytelling feel present in my life in this community way that I didn't quite have before.
0: What's the curriculum like then on the roundhouse? How do you sort of approach the task of training somebody to be a storyteller?
1: Well, I've got a beginner's course on there. So I suggest people uh, take three months over that, which has kind of grown out of the coaching uh, I've done with the different groups, you know, so it's based on my beginner's course there and techniques that are generally taught to beginners. And I've just kind of experimented with the format there. Um, so you spend a few months going through that, and then you're kind of released into the main school where I um, I add two modules each month, um, one which is a study of a type of story or a storytelling tradition. So it could be Scottish folk tales, it could be fairy midwife tales, it could be uh, the man with no story tales. Um, And then I also have a supporting module, which is a study of a piece by a really great storyteller or a study of an aspect of the business, like storytelling in schools uh, was the last one, for example. Um, So I suggest people to take um, two modules each month. So they study, you know, a story tradition or type and uh, and a supporting module. And... um, it's obviously it's um it's quite new, so they'd probably just be following month to month with the new ones. But eventually there'll be a whole big library in there, and people can just pick like okay, this month I'm going to do um, tricks or tales, for example. Uh, the beginners course, I, I encourage people not to really get focused on telling technique or in trying to be good for until the second month. I want the first month to be all about connecting to stories and building a relationship to stories I call it um I call it courting the stories so I think it's really important to focus on your relationship like say it's I say it's like imagine if you're meeting a person um you don't want to wake up uh, walk up to them be like oh I think I could really do something with you like I think we'd look really good together let's go out walking about together and people see us together and that'll be great you want to just say oh you you look like an interesting person i'd like to get to know you and pay attention to them and listen to them and spend time with them and see what see what grows from there and so that's that's the that's the foundation uh, of where we learn what we learn
0: if you're talking to somebody who is thinking about getting into storytelling but are kind of unsure about it uh what would you say to them is there anything in your experience that sort of tends to hold people back yeah,
1: uh, well, first of all, I would just unreservedly say, do it, do it, do it. If you've got any inclination at all, then then follow your bliss, follow your nose and uh, give it a try. It's it's such a fun thing to do. There's so much to learn, so much to discover and explore and amazing communities of people who are now connected all throughout the world. And it's great fun. It's like having a license to play as, a, as an adult. Like, you know, as a kid, you know, you just, you play at being... Um, you know, ninjas or um, nin- um, ninja turtles, or play at, play at Star Wars or whatever as you did. Um, you get to do that as as a storyteller. You get to play it being Hercules in the underworld or Dermot's going to the land under wave and then fighting the Fomorians. And while you do that, you've got this whole group of people there with you who are like who are listening and imagining and feeding into it. And it's just it's it's ridiculous how how fun it is. It really is. But in terms of what holds people back, it's the the sense that storytelling needs to be a performance, and and if they're not good enough, then that's you know that's if they do a story and it's not wonderful, that's a bad thing. It's a it's a what I really try and work at in the particularly in the beginners course is just um, breaking down that sense that okay, I'm going to be doing the story, I'm going to work and work and build up. And when I'm ready, I'm going to do the performance, I'm going to make that as good as I possibly can. Like, no, that's the opposite of what you want to do. You want to just as soon as possible, like get the bones of the story down in your head. There was a fox, he was cold and hungry, he went out walking, looking for some food, and then he met a dog, just just like that. And just instantly just grab the nearest person and just say that there was once this fox, and he did this and that, and that and that and that happened. And then say it again, go out walking and tell your dog while you're walking, go and tell a tree down the park and just get rid of this sense that, a, that a storytelling is a capital p performance um, and you need to build up to and do it when it's exactly the right time and you're in exactly the right mood and the stars are in alignment and so on just getting comfortable so the stories are you want to get to the level where you're like someone like david campbell or duncan williamson where you just they're just part of who you are and you just breathe them you just tell them naturally and it doesn't matter if they're good or not
0: what would you say are the benefits of learning storytelling as a skill beyond just being able to sort of tell a good story? Is it a, a life enhancing uh, experience?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, one part of it is just the the community you'll, you'll gather and the, the friends you'll make. Um, another part is the, the way that becoming a storyteller in forces you to look at yourself Uh, because um you know everyone can tell stories and everyone should tell stories and it's a great thing to be able to tell a story around a fire or with your kids or with your friends or whatever but if you want to really go far with it and you want to you want to dive deep then at some point you're going to come up against your own shadow you're going to come up against the story where you're uncomfortable with some of the characters or one of the characters and you find you can't quite tell it because of that. Or if you tell it, you kind of just kind of ignore and skirt around that character and that's not gonna work. So you need to go, okay, why am I uncomfortable with Mr. Fox? Why am I uncomfortable with this, uh, with Princess Gem Lovely? And that's one of the things that stories are for. They're, you know, a, a, when someone opens the door to an oven to the other world, tells a story, and we look into the flickering flames, and we pass through all the moods and dimensions of that story. We're going places where it might be dangerous to explore in the real physical world, but we can do it kind of semi-safely by going there with the storyteller. As a storyteller, you're guiding people into these places and asking them to consider what they would do in this dreadful situation. How, what choice would they make or look to look at a character, a dark character and say, okay, so that guy's completely separate from you, really? Really, there's, there's no part of you that would have acted in that situation. So it's, it's, a, it's a space in which you can explore these questions. And that's, that's a very deeply enriching thing.
0: Mm. Storytelling is a, kind of the wellspring of philosophy, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, these, these stories are they're the hard-won knowledge of our ancestors, people who lived as farmers in times when a drought could mean death, People that lived as hunters who had to go out into the taiga, into the bush, the savanna, and perhaps get eaten uh, on a daily basis. And they came back and they told these stories in the evening. And these stories, which they passed on to their children and passed on for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that, they weren't fanciful entertainment. They were what they knew of life, even if they were about giants and ogres and talking lions. That's, that's the, the language which the mind works in which the dreaming mind works and it communicates on a deeper level and to telling them in these narratives ensures that that knowledge gets passed on
0: you've been listening to the makers of dreams a guest episode of law and legend with storyteller daniel ellison You can find out more about Daniel's storytelling and listen to the House of Legends podcast by going to his website at www.houseoflegends.me. If you're interested in joining The Roundhouse, Daniel's online school of storytelling, you can find that at www.roundhouseschool.com. All of those links can be found in the episode show notes. The Law & Legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall, with additional music from Sekilo Museum of Ancient Instruments. To find out more about episodes of Law & Legend, you can visit www.lawandlegend.co.uk and you can check out our episode blog posts. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider joining our family of patrons and supporting the podcast regularly. For more details, you can visit our website and click on Support Us to find out everything that you need to do that. So thanks once again for listening, Story Folk. We'll be back next month with our Halloween special.